You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for another Lozano Smith podcast. Today, I'll be your host, Sloan Simmons, a partner and litigation co-practice group leader out of the Sacramento office. I'm excited to be joined today by our, our firm's two labor and employment practice group leaders, Michelle Cannon, who has been with us on the podcast circuit before, previously discussing the ins and outs of Title IX. As we talked about that time, one of our most experienced attorneys who, uh, apart from bond work, has done it all in the in the world of, of ed law and ed law practice, supporting boards and administrators in our districts and county offices of education for years and years. And are also joining us for our first time appearance on the podcast circuit is Gabriella Flowers, the other co-practice group leader of our, our labor and employment practice group, also out of our Sacramento office, a partner with significant experience and expertise, in particular in the labor and employment field, but others as well. I, I would be remiss not to point out, I think, one of the best attorneys in the state when it comes to dismissal proceedings and the handling of those types of, of matters on, on behalf of our districts, in particular certificated dismissal proceedings. Why are we here today? Well, Labor and Employment, and the Legislative Session. Uh, We've run podcasts on this year's developments in the special education context, in the student context, facilities and business, and more. And we are now here to address the new enactments from this year's Legislative Session as it relates to Labor and Employment. There are more bills in this area than any other that we've discussed with other groups. And they would, Michelle and Gabby, certainly tell you that they're, in their view, the most important set of bills to pass this year. So, all that being said, Michelle, Gabby, good morning. Welcome. Morning. Good morning. We're excited to be here. Right on. All right, Michelle, let's start with you. And um, this year, one of the bills that deal with classified employees and their probationary period. Yes, this is an interesting bill because I think it was kind of a... It crept up on people. Uh, A lot of folks weren't paying attention to it. But I think you're referring to AB 1353, right? And what this bill did was mandate that there's a new limit on probationary service for classified employees. And the new limit is now six months or 130 days is the maximum for a probationary period for classified employees. And this is kind of a big deal because um, up until now, or up until January 1, when the law goes into effect, districts have been able to set their own probationary periods Mm. for classified employees up to a maximum of a year. So a lot of districts have a lot of different probationary periods. You see a lot at six. We see a lot at the full one year that the, the Ed Code has previously allowed. However, for school districts and county offices that are merit systems, and those are, of course, a much smaller percentage of districts and county offices, they've always had this six-month maximum. That's what the merit system rules have always included. So this law's, uh, the intent of this law was to harmonize all those rules together and make sort of a, a consistent probationary period for classified employees. So now the period will be this um, six months or 130 days for all employees of school districts. And, if I may, for districts that have a longer period, which, again, a lot of them do have the one year right now, they will need to update either collective bargaining agreements or their board policies that provide that to come into compliance with the law. And the law does allow them, if they have this in their collective bargaining agreement, where they have a longer period, um, up to a year, 
that's okay and that can remain until the collective bargaining agreement is renegotiated or expires. Got it. I know there, I, I believe there's some other bills that you guys will be talking about today that which also have that kind of mechanism in place. The idea if it's within a, C, a CBA stays in place until the next uh, go around on negotiations, right? Right, that's yeah. right. And that's become fairly common for a lot of labor and employment type laws where they recognize that you might have collective bargaining agreements in place that you can't immediately change. Makes sense. Makes sense. Gabby, what about AB9 and um, the the limitation on employment discrimination actions? So AB9 represents uh, one bill that is reflective of kind of the legislature's push to enact laws or expand laws to be more employee friendly. And what AB9 does is it essentially expands the timeline for when an employee can claim or file a complaint of discrimination under California's Fair Employment and Housing Act. And why that matters to public entities is that prior to January 1, 2020, employees had one year to file these complaints. Now they will have three years. So a likely outcome of this is to see an increase in claims potentially um, where employees are claiming discrimination. Now, um, this does not revive old claims. So to the extent a complaint or a potential claim was expired under the one-year deadline, that will not be revived in 2020. It's interesting to point out that under federal law, the deadline is 300 days. And so this does not impact that. So it's important to be aware that there are different statutes, state and federal, with regard to employment discrimination. So remind me, Gabby, my recollection is that Let's say I file an employment discrimination claim with the EEOC, and assuming it's timely, both under state and federal law, I can then, based upon that claim, proceed with litigation in court under both state and federal law. Usually what happens is an employee will file concurrent claims, and they typically opt to initially file with California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which is the state agency that enforces Um, FIHA. And depending on how the FIHA claim is resolved, the employee may or may not pursue an EEOC action if they still have time to do so. So if I file a a claim of DFEH in year two and beyond 300 days, I'm still going to have likely a gateway forward for a suit in court based upon the FIHA, the Fair Employment and Housing Act. I can proceed in in court under that FIA claim, but because I did not submit a claim within 300 days, my my parallel Title VII employment claim would be barred? Well, it depends. Now, if the employee filed concurrent claims, one with the DFEH and then attached an EEOC complaint, then the EEOC has two different deadlines. So it's either 300 days from the alleged discriminatory act, or 30 days uh, from when the employee receives what's called a right to sue notice from the DFEH. And that is essentially the DFEH saying that the employee has exhausted what we call their administrative remedies and now can proceed with litigation if that is what they choose to do. If they didn't dual file or concurrently file the complaints, with both the DFEH and then attaching the EEOC claim, then yes, I would agree that they have waived their federal law uh, discrimination claim because more than 300 days has passed. Got it. Thank you, Gabby. 
Uh, Michelle, how about school start times, SB 328? This was a bill that in the student legislative update we talked about with Ruth Mendick uh, in terms of kind of the student impacts and foreshadowed there that there clearly is interactions on the labor and employment side with this. So walk us through that bill from a labor and employment perspective. Yeah, and I think there are definitely labor and employment impacts. So um, the SB 328 is the new school start time bill. It doesn't take effect immediately, but what it says is by July 1 of 2022 that there are limits on how early a school can start. So for middle schools, they will not be able to start any earlier than 8, and high schools will not be able to start any earlier than 8.30. And it's an interesting bill because I think that a lot of the school districts and CSBA opposed the bill, but you talk to any kids and they're like jumping for joy that the bill was passed, right? Because a lot of schools have been starting really early. My, my own kids' school started at 7.45 every morning. So, But the impacts to employees will be that this is going to impact their work day and their start time, and that's subject to bargaining um, because it's within the terms and conditions of their employment and it affects their work day. So that's going to be a bargainable impact. So even though there's a new law that requires it, our school districts and county offices are going to have to discuss this and bargain, not the decision, but the impacts with their labor unions. I see it impacting not only the start time for their workday, but also transportation, I think, will be impacted. And so to the extent they are providing transportation, um, portions of their collective bargaining agreements with regard to transportation will be impacted. It may also impact and require changes to their regulations and board policies in those areas. So those are the two main things, I think, the impact on the start time for employees and then transportation and what that's going to look like. And so if you're bargaining as of January 1, 2020, you're going to need to be addressing this point. But if you've entered into and finalized a CBA as of, say, today in late November, that whatever you've agreed to in that CBA will remain in place until that that contract expires and you start your next round of negotiation. Exactly. Similar to what we just talked about with the classified probationary period. Yep. Thank you. Gabby, hairstyles. Now, this is right up your alley. Recently, Gabby <laughs> changed the tint of her hair just to a slight auburn. What do you have to say about SB 188? So SB 188 picks up another change to FIHA that we um, just discussed. And what it does is it not only expands certain discrimination characteristics based on race, it also amends the education code to that effect as well. And so what it now provides is that you cannot be discriminated against based on race, and that definition of race now includes traits historically associated with race, specifically hair texture and, quote, protective hairstyles, quote. And so they go on to further explain this to define race as things like braids, locks, and twists, those types of hairstyles. So what districts are going to need to do, and this is public entities across the spectrum, is look at any sort of dress code policies they may have for school districts, that includes students and employees, and then for other public agencies, any sort of employee dress code. To the extent that it conflicts with this definition of race or could be viewed as conflicting with that, um, will need to be looked at and changed to comply with, with these new laws. So the term protective hairstyles, can you flush that out for me a little bit? Right. So it's certain hairstyles, and again, the legislature defined this, so 
employers know how employers and school districts know how to actually implement this. But it's certain types of hairstyles like braids, locks that are defined as these sort of protective hairstyles. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I mean, that's an interesting one. And this is the amendment to the education code in terms of 212.1, which would apply to students. I'll note is one that in our legislative roundup for students, we didn't go into in mm. detail. So that is one on the student side for folks to be aware of. And, and I have seen over the years this issue arise, maybe not necessarily directly in the protective hairstyle type framework as defined under this law, but, but it does arise from time to time that a given grooming code um, has what I would call a disproportionate impact on certain hairstyles, which then can be associated with a given group of students based on race or ethnicity. So that's an interesting addition. And that's exactly what the legislature described as the basis for this bill, was because it tends to disproportionately impact minorities. Thanks, Gabby. Michelle, as, as one of our former leaders of our Title IX impact team and now uh, one of our co-leaders in labor and employment, why don't you talk about SB 778 and the new sexual harassment training requirements? Sure, happy to. I think before we talk about SB 778, it's important to go back and remind ourselves of the prior bill that this bill builds upon, and that was SB 1343, which was just enacted last year, September 2018. What that bill did was require employers um, with five or more employees to provide the two hours of interactive sexual harassment prevention training for supervisors, which has been on the books for a long time now, and at least one hour of interactive sexual harassment prevention training to non-supervisory employees by January 1, 2020. So that was the new part. Now, if you've got at least five employees, and so it applies to all employers that have at least five employees, you have to train all of your regular line employees, uh, give them at least one hour of training. But there was confusion in the law about did that training have to occur by January 1, 2020, or did the rules start January 1, 2020? And folks were all over the place. So the new bill, the SB 1343, basically clarifies what the, what the prior law said. And it, by the way, is also urgency legislation, so it takes effect immediately. So it's in effect now. And what it said is that if you have five or more employees, you're required to conduct your sexual harassment prevention training for both the supervisory and non-supervisory employees by January 1, 2021, as opposed to January 1, 2020. So folks now have this next year to do that one-hour training that was the new part of the law last year. For anyone who's already done the training because they were going with the January 1, 2020 deadline, that's what they uh, thought was in place, Uh, they're good. They don't have to do the training again for 2021. And now it's on a two-year cycle, just like the supervisor training is. So for everyone who got it done in 2019, they're good until uh, 2021. It is required to be interactive, just like the supervisory training. And so what a lot of people are doing is they're doing a one-hour training for all of their employees and then excusing the non-supervisors and then doing the supervisor training. That's an option too, or you can have them be two completely different trainings. Got it. Got it. Anything nuance in terms of the interactive requirement? Uh, I mean, the interactive requirement has been there almost since the law was created, and that's probably 12 to 14 years at this point. There have been some additions over time on what specifically needs to be included, because even though it's sexual harassment prevention, what we are entitled to talk about disparate treatment, disparate impact, 
race discrimination, and some of the other things. And so that all remains in that training. And that applies to the one hour and the two hour portion as well. Got it. Well, Michelle, let's stick with stay with you. What about SB 142 and uh, lactation accommodations for employees? Yeah, this is a bill, and again, it, it applies to employers, uh, all types of employers, that basically builds on existing law with regard to lactation accommodation in the workplace. So the new bill, uh, SB 142, requires that employers provide a lactation room or location that's not a bathroom, and that's key, that's free from intrusion, and then it has to include these following things. A surface to place a breast pump and personal items on, a place to sit, and has to have access to electricity. And so these are some new building blocks on on the existing law. Uh, It also requires that the employer provide access to a sink and a refrigerator in close proximity to the employee's workspace. And that's new as well. That wasn't part of the existing law. So those are sort of the highlights of it. And it really goes a long way, I think, towards, you know, allowing women that are transitioning back into the workplace after having a child, being able to do so and being able to have a place that they can take care of the lactation needs and store it safely and all that good stuff. Got it. Got it. Gabby, what about AB 749? So AB 749 is one of several bills that is an outgrowth of the Me Too movement. And what it does is it prohibits a settlement agreement with uh, regarding an employment dispute from containing a provision that prohibits, prevents, or otherwise restricts a settling party from not being rehired from that employer. And the reason why the legislature drafted this bill, uh, which was signed into law by the governor, was that there was a concern with employees claiming employment discrimination, then entering into a settlement agreement with their employer and separating the employment relationship, which is still fine, but then not being able to work for that employer in the future while the alleged perpetrator still enjoys employment potentially with that employer. So to address this, the legislature said, you know, you can go ahead and enter into these settlement agreements and the settlement agreement can include a separation from service, but we're not gonna say that that former employee is now barred from being rehired by that employer. Now, when you think about this bill, I think the intent was targeted more towards larger corporations, multinationals, that sort of thing, where there may be a bunch of different Um, subsidiaries or other locations where the employee or former employee can work, but it does apply to public agencies equally. So there are a couple of exceptions. So for instance, if, if the person who is separating from service pursuant to one of these settlement agreements engaged in sexual harassment or sexual assault, you can still include these no rehire clauses, Um, but the law is pretty narrow on the exceptions. So again, any settlement agreement that contains this sort of rehire language that's entered into on or after January 1 of 2020 will be void if it contains this this no rehire clause. Another caveat is that this only applies to settlement agreements where they use the term aggrieved person. So where the individual has filed a claim against their employer. It doesn't have to just be in court. Uh, but certainly that would apply, but also before an administrative agency 
in any sort of alternative dispute resolution forum or even through the employer's internal complaint process. But the key thing here is that it only applies to settlement agreements where an employee has filed a claim against their employer. So Gabby, walk me through the hypothetical that I'm envisioning as you describe this, this new law. We have an employee who uh, we have submitted charges to terminate um, and dismiss for 10 valid reasons all of which led the employing public entity to the road of dismissal. There's no question as to the, the, the fact that if it goes to hearing, district will prevail. There's no likelihood of there being any uh, improper motive. But, aha, I'm the employee. I now submit through the public entity's internal complaint process a complaint alleging that the only reason you're doing this is because of a protected classification does that now mean, because of this, and let's assume for the sake of this hypothetical, it's, it's a farce, sham complaint, but because that has been done by the employee, any termination agreement, which might normally specify that the teacher or other public employees not to seek to be rehired, we now can't include the clause in that settlement agreement? Well, I think based on the language of this new law, if the settlement is based on the complaint to resolve the complaint, then arguably you're correct that we wouldn't be able to include that. No. But it necessarily would, right? We would, through the release, address that would, it would be a have to right. be waived. Right. And, and it would be a, I mean, in that hypothetical, you would typically have a global settlement agreement that would address all the pending actions, including the proposed termination. But again, this does not prohibit an employer and an employee from separating or severing the employment relationship. And to the extent you don't include a no rehire clause does not in and of itself create any sort of right to employment. Right, right. Okay. I think I see the impact maybe on larger employers where there's more likelihood that two years down the road, people could forget all about this and right. someone applies again and gets rehired, right? Whereas for smaller employers, they maybe are, are it's, I don't know. It seems less likely to be a problem, but I could see it being a, a pretty big game changer for some bigger employers where they may now be, you know, reemploying employees accidentally that, you know, threatened to sue them and that, that they settled with to, to terminate. Interesting. So, I mean, one thing to keep in mind now is if you're, you know, trying to reuse old settlement agreements or that sort of thing, we caution you from doing that and make sure you have whoever your legal counsel is look at any sort of settlement agreement you want to use starting in January 1, 2020 to ensure that it doesn't violate this. Because if it does, that is void as a matter of law and that's in the statute. So you don't want to end up with an agreement that you can't enforce. Well, from that interesting subject to organ donation, <laughs> Michelle, what about AB 1223? Yeah, AB 1223 provides employees unpaid leave for a living organ donation. And what it requires is, a, and it, again, it applies to private or public employees, they will now be required to grant an employee an additional unpaid leave of absence, not to exceed 30 business days in a one-year period for the purpose of organ donation. Uh, and it requires that a public employee first exhaust all available sick leave before taking that unpaid leave. And, you know, there have been some other organ donation type leave statutes over the last 15 years or so. And so this is, again, just building on that. And I think uh, with the public policy reasons behind it that we want to encourage 
employees when they can to do- donate living organs and so provide them a period of, of leave that they can do that. The interesting thing, and, and it dovetails with the sick leave, is it's a period of unpaid leave, but you can, of course, use your regular sick leave if you have it so that you're paid during that period. And obviously, if you're do- donating an organ, there is a, a, you know, afterward, you are unable to work for, you know, varying periods of time, depending right. on what the donation was. So I think it just makes sense and it, and it makes it easier for folks to donate um, living organs. Educate me for our public entity clients and the, the various issues that arise when it comes to leave. Is an item like this one which, for example, gets memorialized in the CBA versus a district's or city's or county's policy? Is this something that should necessarily, in other words, reflect a change that needs to be made independently in a, a public entity's underlying documents, contract or policy? Or is it something which it's just a matter of those departments, HR departments for our public entity clients to know of and make sure they're calculating and granting appropriately? Yeah, I think it can work either way. But I will say the common way is that the CBAs do have the detail on all of the various leaves that are available to employees. They're going to have jury duty leave and bereavement and parental leave and sick leave and all that stuff. So I see this as something that I know at the tables where I'm bargaining, we'll add this to the list of items that we want to add into the CBAs where their leaves are really specific about what leaves they're entitled to. And it's more a way of making sure that everyone understands it, not only from the HR side, but the employee side so that they know those leaves are available. A lot of employees will go to their CBA when they're looking at what's available. And if it's not in there, they won't, they won't understand that it's available. Gabby, the trailer bill, uh, always usually a, a, a place to find some interesting nuggets and, and additions. Uh, what do we have in terms of um, Senate Bill 83? So with Senate Bill 83, what we're seeing is really California taking a big step um, in expanding paid family leave. You know, as, as many of us know, California tends to lead the way in changes in law that uh, many other states tend to follow. I anticipate this will be no different. So beginning July 1st of 2020, the state disability insurance program's paid family leave, which is a wage replacement benefit, will be extended from six weeks to eight weeks. And this can be used again for bonding, and then also to take time off for work to care for a seriously ill family member. So again, there's been lots in the news about expanding uh, bonding leave for workers and employees throughout the country, and, and California is taking this very seriously. In fact, in SB 83, there is express language that the intent is to extend this leave to six months by 2022. And in fact, the governor's office is tasked with coming up with a scheme to do that. Mm. So we, I would expect to see in the in the out years, other states following suit. But this is definitely, again, an example of the employee-friendly trend that we're seeing in these um, new bills. Is there anything, in ter- are there conditions for eligibility for, for this benefit? Yeah, so to to be entitled to any sort of paid leave, because it's part of the state's disability insurance program, an employee needs to have paid into California state disability insurance. 
And so, for example, for teachers, they don't pay into SDI. And so they're not going to be entitled to this wage replacement benefit, but certain classified employees and other public agency employees may be entitled to it. So it's a simple matter of looking on their payroll um, information to see if they pay into California SDI to know if they're eligible. Got it. Thanks. Yeah, it seems that's the, one of the consistent with one of the other prior bills we talked about. To me, it also, if the state meets its goal here in terms of the six-month benefit by 2022, it certainly would have, in addition to taking care of, of, of an ill family member, I think certainly would provide a more friendly environment for those employees who are bond, you know, male or female bonding with children post-birth and all that. I, I see the policy rationale underlying that, that move. Michelle, the Dynamics decision in AB5. Yeah, this is actually a, a pretty interesting bill that's going to have uh, some real impacts on, on most employers in the state of California. So uh, AB5 was signed on September 18th, 2019. It takes effect January 1, 2020. And what it does is it codifies the California Supreme Court's decision in the Dynamics case. That was Dynamics versus Superior Court of Los Angeles. It was a 2018 case, which made it more difficult to classify a worker as an independent contractor. And a lot of our clients will struggle with how they can bring in consultants, how and when they can bring in consultants or employees, and when are they independent contractors, when do they have to become one of our employees. Uh, So the new legislation codifies the Dynamex case, and what Dynamex held was that for purposes of determining whether an employee is an independent contractor or not, you look at three things. There's a three-part test, and the, the case had sub A, B, and C, so it's sometimes referred to as the ABC test, if you've heard that before. And so the three things you look at to determine whether an employee may be um, considered an independent contractor or not is whether the person is free from their control and direction in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work and in fact. Next, whether the person performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And last, uh, whether the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. So AB5 also expands on the applicability of this three-part test to specific sections of the California Labor Code and the Unemployment Insurance Code. It does exempt specific occupations, uh, including licensed architects, lawyers, and private investigators from the ABC test. For those folks, those types of professionals, they're governed by a different test from a different case, and it's referred to as the Borello test. Uh, And that test doesn't contain any sort of rebuttable presumption that a worker is an employee like the law does in California now under the ABC and the Dynamics and now AB5. The Borello test has nine factors that the courts will use and focus on the amount of control the hiring entity has over the worker. And again, think about an architect who's coming in and really doing you know, they're doing what the district wants, but they're doing making their own decisions, using their own discretion, all that sort of thing. Same as as attorneys. AB5 also authorizes the California Attorney General and certain local government officials to seek injunctions against hiring entities on behalf of misclassified workers. Uh, And some of these changes to the labor code apply retroactively to existing claims to the extent permitted by law as well. So I think what the moral of the story is, is that California is really clamping down and limiting the use of independent contractors 
And when you think about what's going on in California, it makes sense because independent contractors don't get vacation leave. They don't get benefits. You know, they don't get a lot of, they certainly don't get tenure in a school district or something like that. And so I think the legislature is wanting us to just look closely at those workers and making sure that we're not treating them unfairly by calling them independent contractors when they really shouldn't be. Well, this certainly has an impact, Michelle, on public agencies in certain categories of folks that they've historically employed. Is the broader impact here more in the private sector than, than the public public sector? I think so, because yeah. I think there's been a lot of misclassification of workers in the private sector. Public sectors, especially in, in the education setting, there are already a lot of parameters which control classification of workers. So I think it's going to have the biggest impact in the in the private sector for sure. I think, I mean, it, it applies broadly to all. Um, it also impacts the labor code and the unemployment insurance code all of which apply to private employers, but only some of which apply to public employers. And we're still working through, you know, which of those sections are impacted and and will apply to our public entity clients as well. Michelle and Gabby, this is great stuff. We're going to wrap up, but I'd, I'd also ask you too, as we come to the conclusion here, anything from a labor and employment perspective as we approach the beginning of a new calendar year that you would, you know, put out there as a best practice, something for public agencies to keep in mind as they head into a new calendar year in light of, apart from being ready to act on these new legislative uh, enactments that will come effective January 1? Well, one thing I know I always advise clients is now is the is the right time, either now or within the next six weeks, to look at the new laws. And we've certainly put out client news briefs on these items, and we've just discussed. And, and the ones we've just discussed, by the way, are the highlights. There are many, many new labor and employment type laws on the books. But look through those and make a checklist of ones that are going to apply to your agency. And then look to updating your policies and your regulations, you know, within the next six weeks or so. And then make a note to yourself on collective bargaining agreements that may need to be, you know, changed or or will be impacted over the next year as well, just so that you keep on top of those, especially for public agencies that maybe don't use an attorney or outside consultant to help them with their bargaining and they're going at it alone. I think it's easier for them to forget, oh, we've got to make sure we address this when we when our contract expires or when we negotiate a new one. That makes sense. Yeah, I would echo what Michelle says. Um, one good idea is to review your employee handbooks and your agency policies uh, in the new year or, or uh, when things slow down in December, if they slow down. Uh, if you're a school district, uh, look at your board policies and regulations in the 4000 series, because those are going to be your employee policies. And look at the last dates that you've updated these, because it's possible that these some policies you haven't looked at for maybe five years, maybe longer, that now are, are not compliant with maybe more than one change in the law. So I always think it's good just considering the labor and employment to look at your 4000 series policies to make sure they're up to date and compliant with not only changes in the law from the legislature, but also changes in case law, changes in in, um, law governing collective bargaining by the Public Employment Relations Board. I always say that's a good idea when you're coming into the new year from returning from break. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you. Sure. And our our listeners, thank you for tuning in and joining us today um, for another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find links and additional details to this topic as well as our other podcasts. And make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. 
If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.